Welcome to the FASD Success Show, the only podcast where you can get real-world information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This show will help you create calm in the chaos, have hope for the future, and more importantly, save your sanity so you don't lose your flipping mind. Now, here's your host, caregiver turned world FASD educator, Jeff Noble. Hey everybody, welcome, welcome to episode 147 of the FASD Success Show. Tis I, your host, Jeff Noble. Whether this is your first rodeo with us or you're practically part of the furniture, I am so jazzed you're joining us. I know life doesn't hit the pause button, not even when you've accidentally super glued your fingers together. Don't ask, long story. So the fact that you're here carving out a slice of your day for us, it means a lot. And our mission, we're all about transforming FASD from a series of question marks into a collection of exclamation points. How? By roping in the wisest folks in the land, those who've weathered the storms of FASD, I brought them in to share their treasure troves of tales, tips, and the occasional tumble so we could learn when they stumble. Because let's face it, man, sometimes you learn more from the face plant than a flawless victory, right? So if you've been craving a crew that gets the nitty gritty and the pretty of FASD, you've found your tribe. So let's kick back, share a laugh, and maybe learn a thing or two that'll make tomorrow a little bit easier easier, right? So buckle up because it's going to be a good one because in today's episode, we're untangling the complex web of FASD within the justice system. It's like ordering a cheese pizza for your kid and then finding out that she wanted pepperonis on it only to bring it home from the when the delivery guy brings it to put on pepperonis and then throw it in the oven before she notices. It's tricky, but it's totally doable. And that's exactly what we're building here today. A dream team to help you navigate the labyrinth of FASD and the law. So today we're going to be talking about finding your legal champion. Uh, we're going to talk about educating to advocate. And then we're going to talk about the critical role of the right evaluations. Like we're going to discuss why thorough evaluation are key to your loved one's case. All right. And then we're going to talk about pushing for understanding over punishment. We're going to talk to our guest. He's awesome. Kyle White. Before though, before we step into today's juicy details, I want to do two things. One, I want to give a quick shout out to Aaron's boy. He shall remain nameless, but we will say that Aaron's boy listened to the podcast from last week, which was all about swearing. And he was able to listen to the podcast and give his mom some insights into why he swears, into what's going on into his brain. So it sounds like there's a little bit of shared understanding there. Actually got lots of feedback, but big shout out to you, my dude. I appreciate you and good job, Aaron. Way to be mom. That's good work. All right. Before we step into today's juicy details, I just want to take a quick detour, you know, get this stuff out of the way, because it's also important, right? It's important. It's that sense of community and support that's just a few clicks away. So if you're new to this and you're feeling like you're solo in the FAS journey, A, you're not. And I want to extend our hand. We have a free FASD success group, and it's got over 7,000 members just like you all searching for that moment of connection, a shared chuckle, or that golden nugget of advice that just makes sense. So if you haven't yet, make your way over to our Facebook group, 
facebook.com slash group slash FASD forever and join us, man. We'd love to have you. People are joining. We're getting like 20 to 30 a day. So jump on in because the water is warm. That's what I'm talking about. And if you like the podcast, you like what we're doing here, consider hitting that subscribe button. It's like having a weekly coffee date with yours truly where we unpack the world of FASD together. Minus the coffee breath. <laughs> okay. Plus, leaving a review is awesome too. It's like giving me a high five through your phone or device. It helps spread the word that we're in this together, my dudes. And this show is a go-to for tackling all things FASD and awesome. Now, speaking of tackling things, if you're dealing with aggression, might I add, we are doing the aggression master class and that is coming up soon. In fact, tickets go off sale. Like we close tickets March the 4th because it's on the 6th. Because if you're feeling like a referee, more like a ref than a parent, come check out the aggression masterclass, right? We're gonna welcome you with open arms. Like basically, dudes, imagine equipping yourself with the strategies that not only dial down the tension, but open up a whole new way to connect and understand your kiddo. So it's not just me, it's my badass buddy, Barb Clark. She's gonna be joining me as well. And Barb, she's a powerhouse, right? She's a powerhouse of knowledge and she's compassionate and she's going to share insights that she learned from individuals on the spectrum that straight up kind of told her what she was doing wrong and it really helped her with her daughter. So seats are filling up fast than my dog can spot a squirrel. So go to fasdsuccess.com slash aggression, grab your ticket. It's gonna be awesome. And uh, we're in it to win it, okay? So thank you very much for that. So today we're gonna be talking about the law and who are we talking with? We are talking with Kyle White, Esquire. He doesn't say that, I do. I would say that after my name, that's pretty awesome. Okay, let's see. Kyle is a Minnesota criminal defense attorney whose advocacy has significantly impacted the legal landscape, particularly for minority populations. He's not just any lawyer, folks. No, no, his work has led to pivotal changes in upholding individuals' rights within the appellate courts. An appellate court, they hear and review appeals from legal cases that have already been heard and ruled on in lower courts, right? Like an appeal. Kyle has been an instrumental in cases like State vs. Miller advocating for the Amish community's religious freedom and State vs. View addressing racial biases in criminal charges. And as a past president of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the Minnesota chapter, and a frequent collaborator with Proof Alliance, Kyle is leading authority on representing individuals with mental illness and FASD in the criminal justice system. His extensive involvement in defending LGBT rights and ensuring fair representation for all showcases is commitment to justice and equality. All right, I'll be back on the other side and we'll do a recap and a rundown. So if I'm ready, you're ready. Let's go. All right, folks, here I am with Kyle White and of course, Barb. So this is it. This is it. We are talking about FASD and the law with Kyle. So thank you, Kyle, for joining us. And Barb, you have a relationship with Kyle. That's, you know, you said, hey, FASD and the law is a huge issue for our families, either not dealing with it or might deal with it. And you suggested Kyle, because who do we like to have on the show? Real life human beings. And so I want to then, because we could create the narrative, Kyle, when did you learn about FASD? So like, give me a little bit of that origin story through your journey to where you learned about it, because now it's on your website. And that's awesome. I think I first got involved with a woman that Barb Clark knew very well, who I always termed to be the uh, tornado 
And she brought me into this. Barb did not warn me about the tornado because I actually met her second. And this particular woman was a huge influence. Uh, she had, I believe, a couple of kids that were adopted from Siberia who were fetal alcohol. And I got one got in trouble, one was not in trouble. And I represented this young person in juvenile court. And I think that's where I first met Barb. Yep. So your first indication was the tornado, but at least the second person was the weather person, the, you know, the weatherman coming up behind to explain the tornado, right? Barb was the calm, calming influence, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I've never heard that used before, Barb, yep. ever. I see you'd be more like the weather person, Barb, doing the spot, hanging on, and it's going to explaining yeah. why the tornado is happening. But yeah, I agree. I'm providing levity where it's true. Barb's awesome. And was she the one to help you bridge the gap? No, we were in court together with this particular woman and her, her one kid who was in trouble. All of the parents that I've met over the years, and I mean, say I look back to see exactly when this was all taking place. I, I, Jesus, 2015, nearly 10 years ago now, and since then I probably have represented maybe 75 to 100 different young people, either young juveniles or young adults who are fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and all the parents who, you know, adopted most of these kids are. I really been my teachers and my instructors and agree. Yes, them. fair. Yeah, that's fair to say. We often do say it. But what I'm interested in is that paradigm shift, Kyle, because if you had been practicing law for a certain number of years, and clearly these cases have been around since the beginning right. of time. When was that holy S moment or was there that once someone gave you that information, explain that paradigm shift, if you don't mind. I actually was licensed in 1992 and probably had been out for maybe a little more than 20 years when I got involved with the whole fetal alcohol community. And the way the transition worked is I was board president for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, where I represented many young people and, and older people who were mentally ill and struggling with their illness and ended up in criminal court. I'm a primarily a criminal defense attorney. And, and so the transition really came from representing people who were strictly mentally ill to individuals who are fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And of course, as I'm sure you and your audience know, many of your fetal alcohol people are also have a mental illness. Yeah, there is definitely mental health issues. In fact, I was just citing a source literally 10 minutes ago. 94% of individuals on the spectrum struggle with mental health at some point in their life. And that is just a microcosm of the disability. So, Barb, okay, tell me about you coming up then. Give us your perspective on Kyle and how did that facilitation and because. Yeah. I think about how many lawyers you ran into, talked to, oh, yeah. and then well, to finally break through, right? Well, it was an interesting thing because I was working closely with the fam the tornado family, and I had been at court once while this mother fired an attorney. And was um, mom on and the spectrum? No, mom is but not she on had the fired the attorney, right? Yeah, she fired okay. an attorney right in the court waiting room, and then we found Kyle. We found him online because he was on the NAMI website, and that was kind of how we get introduced to him. So, like the first time, I I don't remember Kyle. The first time I met you was in your office or in court. I have memories of both multiple times, but 
I just remember you had such a calming influence on <laughs> not only the mom, but also the young person who was dealing with, you know, the juvenile court system. And even me, you just have a really calming presence. You don't have an intensity that often you can see in attorneys. And yeah, so fair. I instantly, fair. instantly knew that this was the guy in the state of Minnesota, at least this is who we started using. And I mean, I don't know, I've probably referred at least 20, 30 or more families to Kyle over the years. And literally every single one of them is so thankful to me after they've worked with Kyle. Kyle's going to wonder what we're going to ask of him to do next. Hey, we're, <laughs> buttering him. we're buttering the bacon pretty good here, <laughs> yeah. Kyle. Hey, you're like, go on. Uh, thankless job, Kyle. Like, where does the fulfillment come from? hours and these are complex cases often people don't understand where does your fulfillment come from just working with the families the, the parents in some respects have really taught me so much i've met so many families that they know so much about this disability and i was so impressed i think the first time i gave a, a talk to the minnesota organization on fetal alcohol syndrome and was just so impressed by the audience and, and the frustration parents had. In, partic in particular, the parents of young people or anyone who's mentally ill, often you have psychotropic medications that can help either reduce the symptoms of a psychotic illness or depression. Whereas with this disability, I've sensed always from the very beginning that there was a much greater frustration as to many of the legal issues that I would confront and their own frustration. One of my clients' mothers who actually worked with the Minnesota Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, who has one young man who was fetal alcohol, she described it as a death sentence. And what I like about your show is that you put such a positive spin. And I think we just need so much more of that because at least in my world, there is a feeling that it's a war sometimes. You know, the prosecutors don't always see the disability. You know, in my talks that I give now, I call it an invisible disability, as I know many of the community does. And it's just a, a real struggle. And yet at the same time, I think it's going to be something where in the end we make some real progress. And, you know, shows like yours and what Barb does and the people that I've met, they're the inspiration. They're the people that really give me the inspiration. Fair. Well, guess what? Now it's time to give back on a bigger scale, honestly, Kyle, because if you don't mind, I'd just like to ask you some questions that could help either provide perspective or next steps for parents to avoid these pitfalls. And, you know, Barb, you know, years and years from probably your own situation and other situations about how hard it could be navigating that justice system, right? Oh, yeah. Justice system is so scary and on our you know, we have a coach, an online coaching program, Kyle, for caregivers. It's a common thing. I think on every single call, we're talking about at least one family that's struggling with navigating the justice system, whether it's, you know, sometimes it might be that one of their kids has, is involved with the criminal courts, whether juvenile or adult, or sometimes we're talking, we deal a lot with child protection and false allegations. Yeah, that's big time. Good. Thanks lots, for bringing that lots up. Lots of Barb. things. Yeah. Yeah. False allegations. But uh, here's what I want to ask. Was there anything specific that shifted you to understand like this is brain, not behavior? Because that's the piece, would you, I'm not putting words in your mouth, that other attorneys, that other justices, where the disconnect is? Let me start by going back to 2012, 
which I had no idea was happening. This was before I got involved. But Susan Carlson, the former governor's wife, who I believe was a Hennepin County referee, got involved with the fetal alcohol spectrum community and actually was instrumental in getting a resolution passed with the American Bar Association. And it's a 2012 FASD resolution that I recommend to people to read and to look at. And, you know, it's a short little resolution, but the key aspect of it is trying to help people identify and effectively respond. And part of me feels frustrated, like the parents, in the sense that getting people to identify and particularly respond effectively when an individual who is on the spectrum ends up in the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system. And of course, the scary part for many parents is, you know, if you're less than 18 years old and you're in the juvenile justice system, that's one thing compared to being an adult and suddenly finding yourself being charged with a crime that, for example, I had a young man who was charged with fifth degree criminal sexual conduct. And that would have caused him to have to register as a sex offender. It was a very stigmatic crime. And yet I, I was convinced that what he had done was, was really not a crime. And we had, were able to convince the courts. And where it's frustrating is when you're not able to educate the courts and give them the knowledge that, you know, this is a mitigation. Even though it's an invisible disability, Minnesota is one of few states that actually consider fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as a developmental disability. Autism is the other one. And yet at the same time, they're not always considered mitigating in nature. When I say mitigating, I'm really referring to disposition of a case. I think one of the great misnomers from watching TV on a regular basis, whether it's law and order or back in my day, LA law, you know, it's about guilt versus not guilt. And, yes. and really, it's about disposition most of the time. And in the juvenile court, people, practitioners, whether you're a prosecutor or a judge or a defense attorney, you might consider it an advanced babysitting service, and there's no real harsh consequences. Sometimes there is if people are certified as an adult. In the adult criminal justice system, the consequences of putting somebody in jail who has a disability or not recognizing the disability and prosecuting them to the fullest extent of the law. Because obviously that's the job of a prosecutor. It's an adversarial system. I have been a big proponent that whether it's mental illness or a developmental disability such as fetal alcohol, that it should be a collaborative system where people work together to help someone get the help they need, whether it's treatment or whatever it may be. And it's a struggle. But at the same time, I look at it as trying to educate not only the judges and the prosecutors and other defense lawyers. I have one fairly famous attorney in my office who doesn't buy FASD one single bit. And you have that broad spectrum of people who don't get it, they don't understand it, or maybe they, you remember the 50s when doctors said, hey, you know, I have a have a little yeah. drink to get through the labor. In the 70s, dude, they were giving my mom an alcohol drip to induce labor. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we've come a long way. Maybe we're in the early on stages of progressing beyond the total ignorance that has been there for years. And yet in the legal system, you know, because it's set up as an adversarial system, it gets scary, as Barb was suggesting, 
you know, the parents are really frightened when something like this happens. I have a young person right now who ran a red light and he got T-boned by another car. And I'm sure he just had, did not have the, the focus, maybe the impulsivity or the lack of focus or whatever it may be. You know, other young people, suggestibility, false confessions, confabulation. Oh, uh, you're singing my language, my man. Okay, <laughs> no, okay, okay. I, so I've let me ask you this then. We need some goods, Kyle. And while I understand you can't give legal advice here, I'm not looking for it. What I am looking for is, so then what is your base fundamental for your argument for people to understand FASD? Not the whole thing. Like, what is your premise? Subsequently, what are some of the common objections or the pushback to your argument about it being a hidden disability? I think there can be different areas of law that I have to address and go through when I meet a new client and given the circumstances of a particular crime, certainly false confessions and confabulation are issues that you have to look at and address. The difficulty there is in Minnesota, we do not have a per se parental presence rule. So you've had cases where a young person says, I want my parent to be present. And if a law enforcement officer says, no, we're going to interrogate you. We're going to read your Miranda rights and we're going to go right through it. There is no parental presence rule. And therefore, what happens is the young person may not have a parent or guardian present, may not have the wherewithal to know that he shouldn't waive his right to an attorney. And that's one issue. Competency is a huge issue where the individual young person or whoever it may be may not have the ability to really connect the dots, I think is a phrase that I hear all the time, to understand that can they rationally consult with an attorney? Can they understand the nature of the crime and participate in the proceedings? You may have a young person, you know, and I think the language is, you know, they have the ability to, to have expressive language, but not receptive language. And so the expressive language, they may put on a good show, and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what a judge does, and I know the role of the jury and, and the role of the prosecutor. But in reality, they don't have a clue, and they're just putting on a show because they don't want to be perceived as having a disability sometimes. So the competency issue is often one in which the threshold is so low. I mean, if you can pass a few questions, answer a few questions like, do you know what the judge's role is, the prosecutor's role, the, do you know the name of your defense attorney, you're competent? And in the mental illness arena, you can be hallucinating, you can be psychotic, you can be suffering from visual hallucinations, and you can be deemed competent. With the FASD individual, because I think it's more of an invisible disability, it becomes even more problematic due to the fact that they sometimes just don't understand cause and effect. And sitting through a trial, even if it was a three-day trial, I mean, that could be a, a monumental concern. I had this one case where I did not want my client to go through trial. I thought the judge should have dismissed the case. I could not educate him enough to get him to dismiss. And we ended up submitting the case on stipulated facts. And we had a strong enough argument that the court found him not guilty. But again, that's not always that easy. And disposition really comes into play when at sentencing, you're trying to, in, in juvenile court, it's a little easier because, you know, it is called disposition. It's not called sentencing. In adult criminal court, 
it's much more difficult if somebody's considering jail or prison versus the fact that the individual may lack the substantial capacity for judgment no, because no. of that brain damage that they experienced at birth. And showing that, demonstrating that, and especially in the climate where you can't often get a diagnosis because if the mother, the biological mother isn't around anymore, or you don't have proof that she was drinking, you typically will not get a diagnosis. I had a federal judge who had been on an early task force with MOFAS, and she could not believe that I was arguing fetal alcohol spectrum disorder when I did not have a diagnosis. She very plainly said to me, I am not interested in your lawyer diagnosis, Mr. White. I'm interested in a medical diagnosis. And I tried to explain, I said, maybe nine out of 10 of my last 10 clients, I couldn't get a diagnosis. Right. And that's a frustrating thing. So Kyle, is there like certain research or like what kind of evidence do you use to try to prove to a judge or to the courts that FASD is real? In the federal case, I was thinking of, I kind of went through Dr. Pinan Chang's Pinan Chang, of course, is the, the famous unlikely rock star, I call him, founder of the clinic at the U of M, who kind of goes through a list of, did the biological mother drink? I think I had one client not too long ago suggested that the mother, biological mother, when she died, her blood alcohol was like 4.0 something. Mm -hmm. It was just off the charts. Right. Foster home, placement of foster homes. Going through a list of just, is there an impulsivity? One of the things that I think is a huge indicator to me is, and, and I don't want anybody to take offense to this, but you often see stupid crimes. The same crimes being committed over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not the ones planning the crime. They're the ones no. holding the gun when the cops show up. Like Exactly. I just thought I was hanging with buddies. So I know what you mean in the terms of stupid. The executive functioning has not been used in planning or in the execution of this because executive functioning is one of the primary deficits. You know, uh, Barb and I are going to be doing an aggression masterclass coming up soon. And from the doctor that... You know, we work closely with the psychiatrist anecdotally says 95% of all aggression is impulsive. So can I then, I don't want to like straw man you, but then can I say part of your argument is linking the incident to the brain domain, like the impulse. And is that safe to say? I talk about the 10 brain domains and executive functioning and cognitive impairment Suggestibility is a huge issue for many of the young people. One of the more famous cases that went to the Supreme Court here in Minnesota was a young man who was, I think, 14 years old, a Native American kid who was prosecuted and convicted. And at disposition, they convicted him and sentenced him to consecutive sentences, where not only was it like a 484-month sentence, but also a life sentence consecutive. And his father was livid over the fact that nobody paid attention to the fact that he had a psychological evaluation from Dr. Pinan Chang himself. And they took out of context certain things that Dr. That Chang would state in the psych eval, like he showed minimal characteristics of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is very common. Younger people, you may see it at the age of four or five, the physical anomalies, but by the time they were 14 or 15, they may have fade away. Okay. And, but the kids and, look normal and talk normal. Yes. Right. So is that, do you get that rebuttal? Is that a counter argument? Like, is it maybe because the judges execute critical thinking where there is no implicit bias? Because 
the judges have seen a millions of these situations. And now you're saying, but wait a minute. And to think that it's never been brought up before. Like I'm just more me being curious, Kyle, are judges like blown away or are they like, okay, well that makes sense. Can you show me where, do you see what I'm saying? Cause I'm just trying to think of my parents who don't have access to you, like just how they could organize that. I'm often will be asked my son or daughter has ADHD or an antisocial personality disorder. And in the legal system, at least the juvenile or criminal justice system, I think it's we've gotten to the point, many judges and many prosecutors look at that and think that's just another person who's going to end up in jail or prison. And it's not sufficient mitigating factor. The person doesn't truly lack substantial capacity for judgment. Whereas an individual who's suffered brain damage at birth. To me, that's a completely different category. That's a developmental disability where yeah. this person has been brain damaged at birth. He's born behind the eight ball and getting the courts and everyone to understand and effectively respond to it. I mean, that was the whole thrust of Susan Carlson and the ABA resolution was to get them. Yeah, first you got to identify it. And that's been tough enough for yeah. mm -hmm. me in the courts but then effectively respond to it. I know I had one judge in Hennepin County where, you know, he said, okay, bring the counselors in here, bring the therapist into court. And he was kind of calling my bluff, so to speak. And sure enough, we had people who came to court at the sentencing and he said, okay, you're going back to therapy instead of going to prison. But it's rare that you get a victory like that uh, and have a court or a judge under truly understand it. I think they have to have some ability your own credibility is critical as an attorney. And again, I've talked to many public defenders and other private criminal defense attorneys, and some get it, some don't. It's just, it's been a struggle. I think we just need more education and more advocacy to get them to see it. And again, if you have a psych avail that says, and even when you do, you may not succeed, as this one case I was describing from Dr. Pinan Chang himself. And yet, you know, that's what your goal is to get something on paper to medically convince a judge or a prosecutor that this is a serious, serious disability. And again, I'm simple. I'm a simple dude. Is it by chance, like you do your best and it's up to the, the judge? You do your best to make your case and can I convince them or not? Many times, yes, absolutely. When you're in court, at least I'm I'm in court. Yeah, right. I, ha I have a, a prosecutor, I have a judge, and I have a client. And sometimes the client demonstrates enough, even in court, to show that there's a disability there. There's something that's not right. Or on paper, there's something that's not right. With the prosecutors, if you have a prosecutor who understands it, who has some sympathy, some sensitivity, of course, the egregiousness of the crime is sometimes the big factor. If you have somebody who maybe broke into a facility or stole, you know, some makeup from a Walmart, that may be different than if it's something much more egregious like a criminal sexual conduct offense or violence toward a person. And the judges, there's a vast array of judges. Many new judges that are coming along now have a better understanding. Some of the older judges, I find really understanding and sympathetic. They've heard enough and learned enough that it truly is a developmental disability. Yeah, the older ones, that's the truth about FASD is that when you're making logical sense and they've seen 
thousands upon thousands and they could draw parallels just like for parents like that's how I learned that's how I finally was able to see it because you have to literally see it so I saw symptom expression from my kiddo over and over and over and then someone explained where that was coming from that makes more sense than anything else I've heard right so I could see how that happens now this is great insight I will ask you this we'll play pretend a little bit and somebody calls you and you know you don't know what state they're from but they say you know I have an issue I think it's a legal issue what are a few of the do's that a family should do even prior to calling you like what are some things they could do to set themselves up for the best possible chance for when they eventually get to that position to be able to explain that I think the, the first thing is if it's a juvenile case, your considerations of what your approach may be may be different than if it's an actual adult criminal case. That's number one. In the juvenile arena, I had a young man who was being accused of something within his own family. And the mother was very sensitive, was very knowledgeable about FASD. And it was handled, I thought, very appropriately. And we sat down and talked to law enforcement, explained the situation. They were very educated, I think, and sensitive to the issues. In an adult case, it may be entirely different where you may not want to put that young person, if they're 18, 19, 20 years old, they're still an adult. And if they make statements to a law enforcement officer, it can be can taken out of context. And certainly, you know, an admission or a confession can be exactly what a prosecutor is looking for and, and what law enforcement may be looking for. So just even from the very beginning. Secondly, as I was mentioning before about competency, I've had, I'd say the vast majority of my frustration with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder community is that competency is tough because of the fact that you may have an average IQ and somebody who can, their expressive language, as I was stating, is fairly decent, fairly good. And yet the receptive language lags and they just really don't understand. Right. So, 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 yeah, just to break it down for the folks at home, what Kyle is saying, expressive language, they can say the words so they sound competent, but right. their understanding of the words is very different as you at home would definitely know. That's why you ask an individual on the spectrum why you deserve the answer you get. And it's also at the same time when you're talking to individuals on the spectrum, it's concrete. But you're right about pushed into that area of false confessions because they'll say, hey, do you just want to go home? Yeah. Right. Like they'll ask them a, a poignant question. Do you want to go home? Yeah. Well, then just sign this. OK. And then refer. Anywho. Sorry, I was just explaining back to what you were talking about, about the terms. That's all. Keep going. I think in, in 30 years of representing young people, whether it's mental illness or FASD, and actually I should divide that up, but 10 years of FASD cases I've only had one case where the individual was found not competent. And it's very, very difficult with mental illness. Certainly if the individual is psychotic and he's been seen by an examiner, a rule 20 examiner, you may have a situation where the person is not competent. You know, certainly they can medicate people and get them competent. They're changing yeah. the law in Minnesota here now where they're going to have like a forensic navigator. And you may have a young person or a client, a defendant who is found not competent. And then after six months, 
They're going to have a forensic navigator determine whether they're competent after six months and have another Rule 20. And if it's a felony level matter, it can be very frustrating for a family because it can go on for three years just because they're found not competent maybe the first time, they might come back every six months and have another review, another review, and another review. And of course, while all that's happening, the family may be frustrated and the young person saying, when's this going to end? Well, the law is, you know, they can go on for three years and determine if somebody's competent or not competent. And if they That's what they initial- try to do, right? And so, because they take people at face value, not brain value, and right. they hit them on a good day, a good executive functioning day where they're regulated, so they're able to access that part of their brain. And so they can answer thoroughly and they look like they know everything that's going on. Right. But what people don't know and evaluators, as soon as you add some of that cortisol, any is sort of that arousal then that shuts off. They don't have access to that. And then they're in their fight, flight, or freeze, right? One of my favorite teachers taught me, you know, non-confidence is non-compliant, right? So conversely, reversely, non-compliance is stemming from non-competence. Have all of the words and not all of the ability. I had a teacher who said, it's like having a nice car in the driveway, but taking out the steering wheel and brakes. You know, it looks good, but you can't access that decision-making piece. And then let's not forget about our kids not understanding threat perception. So, you know, they know how to respond to a threat very well. They know how to run away or fight or do that, but they don't know how to interpret what is a threat and what isn't. So therefore everything is because then you have their HPA. So their stress response system is often not working, right? So no wonder, but people get hot up on the look normal, talk normal. So they should be normal. And then if they're doing this, they're assigning intent that it's the person, not the brain. And then here we go and they get in trouble and do individuals on the spectrum get in trouble or do they stay in trouble? Right. Do you see that? You know, what starts out, Kyle, as a misdemeanor or something, then spirals into not meeting probation. Do you ever run into that? Or Kyle, you simply defense. So it's more about a singular situation. I mentioned probation. That's a frustrating aspect to this because many Oh yeah, yeah. That's very diplomatic of you, sir. Many parents feel that this person can't plead guilty, for example, and resolve the case. Because if they're placed on probation, they're not going to be able to succeed in probation. I have a federal case right now where my young man was born and and lived in Cabrini-Green in Chicago, where I'm from. And I know Cabrini-Green very well. And he had a terrible environment that he grew up in. And and I'm almost certain that he's a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder kid. No diagnosis. He just cannot maintain on supervised release. He just keeps committing one supervised release violation after another and trying to explain to the federal courts, this is a young man who he just, he can't keep it together. And many, many parents are concerned about that. How is my son or daughter going to fulfill the obligations of uh, conditions of sentencing. They can't. No, that's the problem. That's the problem. So look at a probation order. You know, even though I'm from Canada, I'm sure there's similar. Some of them, they start off with, you must be in at this time. 
Well, what is a primary characteristic, Kyle? They don't understand time because time is an abstract concept. Right. They can't feel time, right? And you go down, will not hang out with so-and-so, will not do that. So everything that their brain struggles with, they must comply with, which is usually why they're in trouble at the same time. You'll get, I'm sure, but we all know there's gems. There's gems in the system. There are gems who are probation officers who just naturally get it because they see it over and over. And so they might not know what it is, but they could still react to it. My question for you is, you've taken several of these families and you're now, you dealt with several prosecutors. Was there any exchange throughout discovery or something where even a prosecutor, well, might still be their job to try and prosecute, maybe after talks to you and says, I didn't know about this? Yes, I yeah, think there's... Give us that uh, juice, Kyle. You know, here in, in Minnesota, our two biggest counties, Hennepin County and Ramsey County, I think they benefited from people who came from previously MOFAS and maybe now the Proof Alliance, where, you know, there's been a certain degree of education that's occurred. I think there'll be seminars or CLEs. I give CLE on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in the legal system. And, you know, I, I feel like we're reaching a lot of people, but just sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. Yeah. Or you have people who still have this punishment prosecute mentality. And that's the only way to, to resolve things is you got to make sure that they get punished. They got to they got to show the community that this person did this and it's going to deter other individuals like this instead of trying to figure out what the problem is treat the problem and maybe do something to really help the community. And I think- Yeah, we don't look at functioning first. And one, if we're one, able to treat the functioning, you will mitigate symptoms and you will have someone who contributes to society and not consumes. One great person, I, I mentioned Dr. Pinan Chang, and there was a psychiatrist in Chicago who passed away a few years ago by the name of Dr. Carl Bell. And he was a African-American psychiatrist who on the South side was convinced that so much of the community was suffering from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. He made a statement suggesting that the greatest public health risk that the African-American community had experienced since slavery was fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And one of his clinics or the clinic that he worked at near Jackson Park Hospital closed down. And he sat out front of the, the clinic uh, with a table he put up. He had his laptop and he had a pen and a prescription pad. And he sat there and he talked to people and provided help to them, whether it was a mentally ill person or someone with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But if you, if you ever have a chance or to look up his legacy, he's just a remarkable gentleman. I wish that I had talked to or met at some juncture, but his name is Dr. Carl Bell. He was really yeah. quite well known within the psychiatric community and very knowledgeable about fetal alcohol issues. Yeah. Kyle, do you have any advice for, so like both Jeff and I, we get questions all the time from caregivers from all over the world, but all over the U.S. and Canada, especially mm -hmm on how to find an attorney who gets FASD or could help them? Like, do you have any advice for families on like how to seek out and find the right attorney? And they might not know FASD, but at least are open to yeah. learning. I think that there's more attorneys that I've met who are un more understanding about mental illness in general, and particularly in the, the young people community, the juvenile community or young adult, and finding somebody I think is 
like finding a needle in a haystack. It's very difficult. I know the various, like, for example, in Minnesota, we have the Minnesota State Bar Association. You can ask them for criminal defense attorneys who specialize in certain areas. In my area with mental illness and FASD, I don't think that there's many that have gotten into it to the degree that I've gotten into it. Um, oh, clearly. Yeah, and clearly. The public defenders, I think, generally speaking, are getting better. They're much better than maybe typically people might stereotype that they're not familiar. But because they see so many cases come past them and to them, I think the, the public defenders really get a bad rap in terms of not understanding being perceived as pretenders, public pretenders, as opposed to public defenders. Federal defenders, you know, I think are typically of a higher category in many respects. But your public defenders in each county, you know, you may be able to talk to somebody in that public defender office and find out who is interested or knows about mental illness or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And that's where I would go. Are people able to actually choose or like say, I don't want this public defender, I want that one? Typically, no. But I think, I think so. you know, you can make a request and see where it goes. It doesn't uh, hurt to ask is what you're saying? It doesn't, doesn't hurt to ask. You talk to a supervisor and they are sympathetic and understand. Hennepin County Public Defender's Office, which is our biggest county here in Minnesota, they have the whole list of public defenders with their phone numbers and email addresses, as well as supervisors. I think it's helpful to contact a supervisor or the Hennepin County Public Defender himself. We have a Hennepin County attorney who's a former public defender, and she's actually very interested in some of the juvenile issues that are impacting the system. So you could even ask the Hennepin County Attorney's Office if you're living in Minneapolis or the neighboring counties of Hennepin County. Yeah, that is so interesting. Like, it's amazing how, you know, the trajectory of your caseload change. You mentioned training. Uh, do you do trainings for other places besides Proof Alliance or formerly known as MoFAS? Or how much do you want to be busy? <laughs> I know that's all I guess. Because people say, email me. I'm just going to say, watch before you say that, because lots of people listen to this. Other than CLE, CLEs are clinical legal education seminars. And I do them periodically when I ask. Sometimes the individual counties or law libraries want to have some additional training because we do have mental health courts now in Hennepin County, Ramsey County, and St. Louis County. And some of the law librarians have had me out to talk. I do a PowerPoint presentation and a seminar. I'm not sure if it's technically a training. I have done some question and answer. I, I can't remember the name of the group. A woman, I think, was someone Barb sent me, Nikki Freeman. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. I even know that name. Yeah. <laughs> Main Street Family Services, I think. Yeah, Nikki. Okay, so then let no. me ask you this. What's next for you? Are you open? So if families the are in your state. <laughs> no, what I mean, if people are in your state, are you accepting clients or? Yeah, I'm probably less busy than I've been. I have a sort of a con contract with the Federal Defender's Office here in Minnesota where oh. I'm on what's called the... Criminal Justice Act panel or CGA panel. And so I take federal cases and often the clientele have mental health issues. And the one FASD case I was describing is one. And then I'll take referrals from NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and the Proof Alliance and from Barbara Clark. <laughs>
Okay, fair. That's fair enough. So we'll just and, like and if somebody if somebody wants to call me and ask a question, you know, most of the time when I answer the phone and I say hi, this is Kyle, and they're like waiting for maybe a bevy of secretaries to answer yeah, the yeah. phone. Mm-hmm. And, but it's just you. So well, we'll do this. We'll give your website for sure. People can email. Sure. Or they and can so email. you know, I I actually don't even really have a website. So well, where was uh, that? I just it's, well, it's your what do you call him? Like your pseudo partner? Is that what you refer my, to? My quasi partner, Travis Kyle, who was a law student that I trained, and I put my name to his sort of virtual. Well, I uh, got you. Aren't you? Yeah, you're on. Kyle is I'm on, on his website. On his yeah. Website. Okay. 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 But people so think like, oh my gosh, is this the wrong dude I'm talking to? But there just so happens to be Minnesota. My law firm would be called the White Law Firm, and his law firm, ironically, is says Kyle Defense. Kyle's my first name. Kyle is his last right, name. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right. And, and, people get that confused all the time, and I and I don't mind. It's so because Travis has probably gotten to the point where he can answer most of the questions that I can, although. And Travis works a lot with our families with fetal alcohol as well, right? Yes. Oh yeah, so there's a bunch of you. Okay, let me ask you this. If you are now in charge, what is the first change you would make to the system about FASD? The first change would be to have, first of all, more training and education for judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, and have it at least, you know, if not every six months, you know, at least once a year. Some of the people around here, I think, have enormous skills and academic backgrounds. Besides Susan Carlson, who actually I've never met and always wanted to, and I tried to call her once and she didn't return a phone call. Jared Brown is another individual, PhD, teaches at Concordia University. He does an excellent training thing for, he's got a forensic studies group organization that he's with. He and I have had conversations and I find him to be one of the foremost experts, at least in terms of the research on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. He's a, just a great resource for me and Barb Clark. <laughs> so. Hey, everybody loves Barb Clark. Okay. I got two more questions. Last one. What are some definite do nots? Like to, if you're talking to parents, like do not blank, like as a general do not. I think the first thing is do not beat yourself up so hard or the kid <laughs> for getting in trouble. I think that's important. Sometimes even the worst situations have happy ending. You know, there there can be a resolution where people understand what happened is due to a disability and the individual may have lacked substantial capacity for judgment and the courts will take that into consideration. A quick story Years ago, there used to be a show on, I think it was like Channel 17, the community court. It was put on by a wonderful judge by the name of Judge Kevin Burke. And he had the the great late Larry Cohen. Judge Larry Cohen was a wonderful judge in Ramsey County. They were two of the most significant judges in St. Paul and Minneapolis. And Judge Burke asked Judge Cohen, what do you think percentage of individuals coming into our courtrooms, our criminal courtrooms, have mental health issues. And Judge Cohen said, I'd say 50% or more. And I think that was an indication to me that there was hope that maybe we could start looking at this as a collaborative process rather than an adversarial process. Now, obviously, there are prosecutors who don't buy that for a minute. 
They want to get their pound of flesh. They want to prosecute. They want to punish. Yeah, I know. They want to be awesome. And they think it's cool. I've seen these folks too. But at the same time, disposition, you have the ability and there are laws. I would like to see more advocacy, just training people first and then start taking a look at the laws. The the mental health people crafted a law in 2003 called Minnesota Statute 609.1055, and it was for offenders with serious and persistent mental illness. I'd like to see something like that for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder clients where, you know, we take into consideration with, you know, public safety in mind that an individual can be sentenced to a treatment program with a mental health component as opposed to being punished by going to jail or prison. I just think that that would be a much better outcome and better for society if we can treat people yeah. rather than just simply punish them. Here, here, here. If we all had our white wigs, here, here, that's what we do. I'd be hitting the gavel. Hey, sorry, Barb. Kyle, I don't think that, I don't know if you have represented families when they're in the midst of um, false allegations within child protection. I feel like Travis maybe has, but do you have any advice for, you know, with the confabulation? You know, things that our kids can do. We pretty frequently have families dealing with that. Mm, Good point, Barb. I think it's very difficult. I actually have a case right now where this particular older woman is accusing somebody of having sexually assaulted her 18 years ago and seems to be using sexual abuse claims against past significant others and spouses. I've had it also within the context of, you know, a young person is in the home and is making up these stories and confabulating what has occurred. I don't do family law or CHIPS petitions myself, but I think you you have to find experts who are willing to testify. I think in Minnesota, we have a dearth of psychiatrists and psychologists who don't really enjoy going to court. They don't really like lawyers. I never did either, to be honest with you. I was 37 before I went to law school and just had no desire to become an attorney. And I don't blame the doctors and the psychologists, but I think, you know, people have to ferret out the truth, determine whether there's a confabulation or a false claim and find experts who are willing to testify in court and rectify a situation that sometimes can really ruin lives and destroy families. And it's awful. Yeah. And CHIPS yeah. is just so everybody knows is child in need of protective services. Say that again, Barb. Children in need of protective services is a CHIPS case within the U.S. That is the acronym for that. Because yes, now yes. as you're talking, I'm like, okay, we got and Most lawyers that. hate doing CHIPS cases. So Yeah. Well, let, tell me this then, because I, this is what I remember. What are like the first three things you said not to panic, don't beat your kid up. But like if their kid gets arrested, because that would be a shock, like the first time, you know, then it becomes old hat. But I'm just half kidding, Barb. You know what I'm saying? I hear you. What are like as soon as what they get arrested, like what should the parents be doing? Certainly they can bail the person out if they can or if they want to. I mean, that's another issue yep. because there's aggression could be an issue that you're yes. dealing with. Right. Mm-hmm. And make that decision. Many times what I have done is actually get somebody from a jail transferred to either a residential ERTS or facility, even a, you know, like Fairview Riverside or a psychiatric facility, get them into treatment as opposed to jail. I think the the jails have become breeding grounds for not only disease and some of the difficulties we Mm. had during the pandemic, 
but we've had enough jails recently, and I include probably all of them. I had one young person who was mentally ill who was in the Benton County Jail, and his parents were just absolutely livid that he was there. And by the time he got out, he looked like an Auschwitz survivor, and he was unrecognizable. So getting him out and getting him into treatment and then, of course, you know, having a sit down with a, an attorney, whether it's a public defender or a private attorney, I think getting the evaluations that would document either a mental illness or a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder situation, those are paramount, getting those evaluations. And if you don't have one, maybe beginning the process of trying to find out. Agreed, you know, sir. Because that's Agreed. a difficult, long We got to get the data, right? So right. you're talking about evidence and the court doesn't really accept anecdotal, right? Right. With all the flags are there, because you even yeah. said yourself, that is very hard to prove. But right. if yeah. there is a you know neuropsychologist who went in and taken a look, now that's a lot harder to disprove from a prosecutor's point of view when you are then providing evidence to counter the claim by mm -hmm. explaining the brain domain and the symptom and and making that correlation, right? Right, exactly. And, and Kyle, can you do like a really a quick cliff note version of like the process? Like I find the families are really confused on the fact that when you go sure. to court that first wow, time, the, you know, it's 8 million times you end up going to court and how all of those various hearings. Yeah, good question. Dude. Maybe I'll start briefly with juvenile court. Typically, most people think it's a first appearance and then trial. But the rules of juvenile procedure here in Minnesota allow you to request a pretrial in juvenile court. I usually like to get a pretrial because I don't want the pressure on anyone that we're going to trial after the first appearance. I generally don't recommend resolving things at a first appearance. I'd rather get those psych evals and have that available for a pretrial. In adult court, if it's a misdemeanor, there's a first appearance, which is an arraignment, and that's an initial appearance, which again, it's not a very good idea to resolve cases because the Prosecutors often feel like, well, fine, you want to resolve it, go ahead and plead guilty. So I like a, a first appearance goes to a pretrial. You get a pretrial you know, or a settlement conference in a court where there's a misdemeanor being charged out. And then the third appearance could be a trial, a jury trial or a trial to the court. So in a misdemeanor case, it can be just three appearances. A felony level matter, that gets a little bit more problematic because you can have a first appearance where it's a bail hearing and you, you deal with that, then they have you come back for an, a first appearance. It could be a combined omnibus hearing, arraignment. Generally speaking, I may request a contested omnibus hearing where if there's constitutional issues involved or statements that have been made, you can move to suppress or move to contest the seizure, search and seizure of individuals. Nice. Then after that, you may have even another pretrial. And then, of course, a trial. And it can get even more complicated when you request a competency evaluation with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or mentally ill community. And there may be a, a six-week gap between the first appearance and having the competency evaluation come back for a review hearing. So yeah. all of that, you know, can be dealt with. But if it's a felony level matter, you can expect more court appearances and you just have to be patient. And again, so it's difficult, I think, for the client to understand that often, at least in cases that I'm involved with, I really feel like I'm an educator, not only for the prosecutor, but for the court. 
yeah. itself. And if we take a while to introduce maybe psych avails or information that's going to help them understand the case, it's much better than you know going to the first parents pleading guilty, then going to a sentencing or a dispositional hearing. You know, but getting that education, which includes the data, as Jeff was saying. You know, to provide them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask. This is a follow up. That real quick follow up because we respect your time and you know you've been awesome and very generous with it. Are you able to request a neuropsych if one has not been done? Is that something you have the power, or does a parent have a power? Because oftentimes, you know, that is missing. But are you able to go back and ask for it? I think that's a difficult issue because the state will pay. For a Rule 20 examiner, for example, in a case where you're trying to determine if the person's competent, they may not be a neuropsychologist. They may not have the background or skills. Even some of your best psychologists, you know, don't have necessarily the understanding or skills of what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is about, has been my experience. And finding somebody who really is great, understands it. I know the Proof Alliance has a clinic now. And they have certain people that can do examinations, but then you may end up paying for an examination if you're requesting your own examination evaluation and you get a neuropsychological evaluation. So and it's like getting, and getting the court to order it? I typically, I don't think they will do it. I mean, you can argue and ask, and if the judge is good, they may say, let's see if we have somebody who specializes, Fair. you know, in Ramsey mm -hmm. County or Hennepin County in neuropsych. I would say they've had more difficulty keeping the Rule 20 examiners available. Like in Hennepin County, they have a, a behavioral psychological services where they've had 16 psychologists on staff. I don't think there's anyone that is a neuropsychologist per se. And you may want to have that neuropsychologist because they just do a much more extensive examination. You rule, dude. That was awesome. Thanks for holding court. Oh, literally. Hey, last question. So when you are not esquiring, like, what do you do? What do you do for fun? I have an autistic son. Oh, I get no way. That's cool. Yeah, and I'm too old to have a 20-year-old, but he's presently in the process of going from a school that's called Transition Plus. It's for special ed kids. He's in his final semester. And as a transition, he's been taking classes at Dakota County Technical College. Okay. And this yeah. just shows me as a horrible interviewer why, Barb, did you tell me? I didn't know this. It was, okay. So it's clear that your experience with your boy on the spectrum was able to be a bridge for your making the connection to FASD. That and also years ago in Chicago, this really predates me, in another life, I worked on a acute care psychiatric unit. It was originally an adolescent unit, and I never heard of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder mm -hmm. on this psychiatric unit, but I worked there for about three years, Rush University in Chicago, and it was like kitty corner across the street from Cook County. But that was probably the really the foundation for my background, where I worked with the mentally ill for a good long period of time. And yeah. Came to Minnesota and started getting calls from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And somebody, I thought, ordered, uh, said, who's ordering pizza? And when, in fact, they were just asking who wants to be the board president. And I became the board president for NAMI. Oh, um, that's, and I really that got roped so, in. <laughs> yeah, it's, I can see, like, that's where the compassion comes from. Because it's I don't point fingers at people who don't live it or haven't had 
brushes with people with intellectual disabilities, but you could tell because you see them every day. And so when someone says, hey, it's the brain doing this, it's the brain, not the person, right? And you're like, yeah, I could see that because my kid right. is awesome. Yeah. And sometimes the brain doesn't serve them well. It's not intentional. It's not. So while people might not understand because they can't, we could certainly educate them where they could empathize. And I say that, and it's not feeling sorry for because they don't want that, but people to understand, like I'll use the example, I've never been to war. I've never been on the front lines, but I can empathize with somebody who said their family member is because I have enough, you know, I can make that connection. And that's kind of what we want to do with FASD, right? That's why I was asking, what specifics do you bring up? Because for example, if I'm educating someone and I'm trying to make the connection, I will use concussion, right? Like in Canada, or even you guys, I consider you the 14th province, but I will make the hockey distinction and talk about symptoms from a concussion. And I will say the difference is individuals on the spectrum, it's not an acquired brain injury, it's a brain injury that occurred during development, right? So it's very fascinating, just like you, sir, Mr. Kyle White Esquire. Barbara, thanks for setting this up. And thanks for being so cool to talk to, Kyle. We really appreciate you. Well, what you guys are doing is awesome. Yeah, well, we have to talk to awesome people. And it's also to let our folks know that people do know and there are good people out there and not to get frustrated when you can't find them like law of averages. And it's about increasing our caregiver skills. So that's why I was asking you, what are these little tidbits that a parent can level up a little bit, mitigate some of that learning curve? Okay, so he says, oh, we're going to be frustrated because this is what we're experiencing. That's what mm -hmm. I'm always going for. So we can not only validate their experience, help them breathe a little bit, but then arm them a little bit too as well. So we need you. You're a cog in the wheel to do that. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Yeah, you rule. Oh, that was awesome. Kyle, you rocked it, my friend. Your insights gold. Hats off in a mass. And thank you for joining us. And Barb, you know, you're always in charge, buddy. I love the way you do business. And that's a big shout out to Barb because Barb is the one who said, hey, I know this guy and he's been serving our families and I think we should talk to him. So she's not only co-host, she's not only lead trainer for us, she's also producer here now too. We'll have to put that credit on here. So, all right, team, let's unpack this because Kyle laid out some heavy stuff, but it's crucial. So first off, we talked about the legal hoops and hurdles for individuals with FASD, right? Kyle pointed out one of the biggies, false confessions and the mess that is confabulation. And get it, in places like Minnesota, there's no rule requiring a parent to be there. So young folks might just wave their rights away, not grasping what they're getting into. Like, that's nuts. Can you believe that? So, so just remember, the court stuff could be super tricky. It's tricky for you and especially an individual with FASD who might not get all the jargon. Imagine trying to play a game where you don't know the rules. That's them with the legal system. And about confabulation where things get mixed up in their heads. It's like their memories play tricks on them. So if you're in a place like Minnesota where a kid could be left to deal with the law alone, make sure you're there or get someone who gets FASD or brain injury to stand by their side. I know but this, that's perfect world, okay? That's, I get everything I say is easier said than done. 
Then we talked about competency. You know, boy, it's a tough one. Kyle hit the nail on the head describing how, you know, slick our expressive, our kiddos' expressive language skills can completely mask a lack of understanding. So the court's missing the marks here, right? Despite having that expressive language, individuals, they could lack the comprehensive understanding. So there's a discrepancy. It leads to misunderstandings in court where verbal fluency is mistaken for comprehension, right? So to advocate effectively, we got to emphasize the necessity of competence evaluations that consider the challenges posed by individuals on the spectrum, right? Evaluations can reveal like what's going on and what is the understanding behind the words. And that can help guide the court to more accurate assessments of competence. And, you know, he also didn't stop there, Kyle. He talked about, he dove into the strategies for advocacy, like legal advocacy. And it's all about shining that light on FASD's hidden nature within that legal framework, right? Using psychological evals and other evidence to push for FASD as a mitigating factor. Like that's the part. And he had successes and he had struggles with that, right? And we talked about, we chewed over like the educational and diagnostic barriers. Snagging a formal diagnosis is like finding a needle in a haystack, especially without clear evidence of confirmation of prenatal alcohol exposure. You know, plus there's the legal community's skepticism towards FASD. It's like just another hurdle in advocacy efforts. And you know this. So, you know, Kyle, is saying to insist on competency evaluations and seek legal counsel that is knowledgeable about them or willing to learn about FASD. Not everybody knows, but lots of people are willing because it's crucial to ensure everybody is involved in the legal process. And understanding the implications of FASD, you know, are awesome. And aiming for a legal approach that prioritizes support over punishment. Here's a real kicker. How FASD sways legal outcomes. Kyle shared stories where understanding FASD led to better outcomes. No duh, but that's the truth, right? Like treatment over jail time. It's these stories that light a fire under push for change. So his advice about families wading through the legal stuff, it was gold. Whether dealing as a juvenile or an adult, he stressed education and the need for those competence evaluations. It's all about making sure the legal eagles, they understand what they're dealing with when it comes to FASD. And then, you know, we talked about probation and Kyle didn't miss words. The standard setup is a recipe for failure for someone with FASD. This is about setting those realistic expectations and advocating for accommodations. And I know finding the right attorney can feel like a wild goose chase, but Kyle, offered some solid advice. Look for those who get it or are willing to learn about FASD. You know, it's all about building that bridge. And I didn't know until the end what a crappy interviewer I am that his personal connection to the spectrum, the autism spectrum and his background in psychiatric care that adds a layer to, you know, that he's a good dude, right? It's a reminder of why this fight is so personal for many of us, myself, Kyle, Barb, you, you know, we talked about defense strategies, the power of those neuropsych evaluation expert testimony. And his parting advice was, you know, if your kiddo has been arrested, pivot towards treatment over punishment. It's about understanding, not condemnation. Are they more likely to get in trouble or stay in trouble? This episode, it wasn't just like a convo. It's like a call to arms, man. 
you know, so it's advocacy, education, it's going to get you through this. And if your child has not had any legal issues, that is awesome. If your child has had many legal issues, no worries, because you are going to educate and you are not going to raise your voice, but rather you are going to improve your argument. So if you're dealing with the legal stuff, make sure to reach out. Go to our blog, fasdsuccess.com slash podcast, where we will be putting all of the goodies and all of the resources. And don't forget, if you're dealing with justice or or whether you're dealing with aggression, we have that masterclass coming up. You are trying your hardest. You are amazing. You want the best. And I know I might not be able to see it, but I know that you're doing your best. Just like I know your kiddos are doing their best as well. So keep up the good work. Let's keep grinding. And we're going to reach the top of the mountain, baby. We got this. You got this. I can't wait until we get to talk again next week. All right. Until then, keep up the hard work. I love you. Bye.